0: we have an incredible opportunity in the next few years to make an enormous difference for the next few generations coming behind us. So there has been there's, there are three major educational reforms of primary um, throughout the 20th century. You had the 1926 curriculum, the 1971 curriculum, and the 1999 curriculum. And this is the next one. So if you can think about how significant that is for our system, for our teachers, for our children, for our parents, for our community, and how they'll experience education. That's certainly what's driving me at the moment. Welcome to Lighting a Fire, all things teaching and learning with the Teaching Council.
1: Welcome to the Teaching Council's Lighting a Fire podcast, the podcast where we discuss all things teaching and learning with a diversity of voices. My name is Thomas O'Rourke and I'm the director and CEO of the Teaching Council here in Ireland. I'm delighted to welcome our guest for today's episode. That's Patrick Sullivan. Patrick has worked with the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment since 2013. In his current role as Deputy Chief Executive Officer, he oversees developments in early childhood and primary education. Patrick was previously a national School or primary teacher and principal. He also has a first class master's in education leadership from Maynooth University and a professional doctorate from Dublin City University. Patrick, it's great to have you on the, on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Tomás.
0: Absolutely delighted.
1: Brilliant. Uh, Patrick, uh, if you're familiar with the, episode, with the podcast series so far, you'll know we all start with the same
0: question. Tell us the story of what school was like for you growing up, please. Well, um, I suppose having listened back to your podcast series and listening to it since it began, Tomás, really, I think there's a theme that runs through many um, people who've entered education, which is around role models. And for me, certainly role models has been a, have been a huge impact have currently a huge impact and continue to have, and have had um, an impact in terms of my educational experience. And I suppose taking it right back from the very beginning, in terms of my family and uh, my, my own, mum is a she's a, a retired primary school teacher and school leader. She worked for many many years with the as a visiting teacher for the travelling community in the northeast of, of Leinster. And, and my father, who's uh, not in education, um, but who left education when he was fifteen to pursue. Um, in, uh, an apprenticeship as an electrician but who's absolutely a lifelong learner huge interest in geopolitics uh, reads everything anything else to do with sport politics current affairs uh Pally Sullivan knows all about it <laughs> and that certainly lit a fire in terms of uh in terms of my uh, education experience with with, with my parents I suppose one of the earliest memories um for me though in terms of learning is actually one-to-one learning where I had a I had a a delayed speech impediment uh, for a time and um, again that supportive family going out and getting the support for me uh, with a speech therapist working with that speech service her name was Cora uh, and uh, working with her for uh, about six months I think um, when I was about four or four and a half and I still remember the final day and the word that I had to pronounce was traffic and I managed to pronounce it, and she said, "Congratulations, that's us sort of completed, uh, or our time together is now ending." And my my brother and my sister uh, walked into the room at that point. My older brother and sister and uh, Cora uh, said, "No, Patrick, would you like something? Uh, would you like to choose a, a suite or a toy or something like that after the session?" And Jill piped up and said, "No, no, he's fine. We have to get on. We have to move out. We have to we have to go home now." And and then she said, then she turned and said, now, Patrick, what are you doing this afternoon? Just trying to get a bit, a bit more conversation out of me before I depart. And my brother piped up, oh, we have to go to football. We have to do this and we have to do X, Y and Z. And then she turned to my mother and said, I think I know why Patrick's delete, uh, speech was a little bit delayed. <laughs> I hadn't found my voice yet. And uh, my, my my older brother and sister were speaking for me uh, rather than myself. So um, for me, that that sort of one-to-one connection with an adult during that time and learning through that, um, I think I, I think on reflection had an impact. And um, moving on from there, I, I, we, we attended our our local national school, Hairstown Primary National School in in Monaster Boys. It's a Monasterboice in County Louth, which is a football mad uh, parish, and the school was uh, football mad too as well. The principal there, Joe Carroll and Fearghal who would have us out training every uh, every couple of weeks um, in our full kit. At lunchtimes, then coming back into to our to our teaching and learning, and I suppose for me, you know, as I mentioned, about this common theme that runs through a lot of these conversations, Tomas, it was Mary Murphy who was a teacher for me who made the difference. Um, I think Sir John Jones, in speaks about how you might remember how teachers what teachers teach you, but how they make you feel. And every time I think about Mary, I think about that that warm sense of maybe belonging, understanding, acceptance. Um, and care that, that I experienced in that classroom for two years, which was very, very lucky in fifth and sixth class. So um, I suppose my early experiences of, of education from that base um, are really, really, really positive. But, but it didn't remain very positive um, following that. I suppose I, leaving that Hairsend that, um, that sco- that, National School and moving into the town in Drogheda to an all boys, uh, single sex school and a very large one with that. Um, was a real challenge for me it, it was also um very much um sport orientated so that that suited me down to the ground and I I, I suppose I, I I I that that suited me but in terms of progress and learning and academia academics and so on I found it I found it increasingly challenging I felt quite disenchanted I suppose and disengaged with with, with uh with learning at that point and I suppose I would have you know, I suppose it would have been understood as maybe that underachieving middle um, group in classrooms. And that probably lasted, you know, on reflection now, probably about five or six years, right into my um, my degree study uh, in Maynooth University, um, where I studied arts, uh, an arts degree, uh, sociology and geography, which I absolutely loved. And sociology in particular, given me a great perspective on the world. A uh, great understanding of social justice and our role and, and our positionality, and also around sociology of education, of course, give me a good grounding in that. But it was um, it was just before Christmas break and uh, in my first year in Maynooth, and I, I rang my mother and I said, listen, I, I know you're, you're not going to be happy, uh, but I won't be coming back after Christmas. And um, This just isn't working out for me. So ma'am, in a very understanding, mother-like way, didn't try to convince me otherwise, but I knew she'd be incredibly disappointed. But she just said, listen, just go, do me one favor before you do. Go and speak to the guidance counselor in the university. So um, I still remember making the appointment, going into the the building, making the appointment, and coming back then for the appointment. And uh, I was in the waiting room. And I was basically saying to myself, "This is a waste of time. Why am I doing this? And this big, tall man about six foot six walks out with a big, long beard called peter. and uh, And he walked the way he talked, uh, from what I remember, just you know slow and methodical, very understanding. And we sat down and he said, "So tell me about why this is not working out for you in the university. And tell me about your time here so far." So I explained about the parties I was going to. I explained about the lectures I was missing and you know not really turning up for tutorials or doing my readings and so on and he looked me square in the eye and he said you have no right to be sitting here in front of me. You will only get out of this place what you put into it. And I suppose Thomas, that was at the time I mean it wasn't the jolt I needed I, I felt at the time it wasn't like a jolt but looking back at it and um, I returned after in the new year I began to take my studies a little bit more seriously. I began to attend lectures, began to do my readings, began to speak to people in my peer group—not about going out and partying or that type of thing, but about actually what we're what we're learning about—and actually began to enjoy listening to different perspectives on different things that we're th- that we're learning about and thinking through. And I suppose looking back on that message that he sent to me, that's something that's that's remained with me ever since. Particularly as I've gone on to further studies and and, be, and became a teacher, uh, on on foot of it. So I, I think there's um that's a, there, there's a few points I think in everybody's life where you kind of look back and go, that, I'm glad I didn't make that decision, <laughs> and that was certainly one of them. Um, following on from that, I I, I took a year out from from Maynooth and and um, I began substitute teaching, and that's where I really fell. In, that's where I really began to think, actually, do you know what teaching is for me? Um, I uh, oh sorry, you know what, look, there's a boat. 10
1: different questions I can ask you based on the story alone <laughs> so far. And I'm going to go back to about five of them. But before I do, and the, the people might assume what the answer might be, given your mother's professional background and so on, and even your father's love of learning. But given the remarkable pivot you found yourself in at Christmas or first year, the conversation you had with your mat, you, you didn't go at that point. You saw the year out and you took a year out. Of it. So, what was it just a kind of a slide into the substitute teaching, Patrick, or was it a, a conscious reflection you said? Oh, Okay, on balance, I feel that's where I want to go. Was it your mother's influence? or Was it something else that brought you to even that first tentative step into teaching?
0: Yeah, it's funny, Tomás, it's only with the passing of time that you get to have a look back and think that actually this is probably more intentional than what I thought it was at the time, because for me, it was a slide into it. It was the easy option, really, because I had the connections to draw on uh, in the local area of the schools that I knew, the principals that my mother knew. Um, there was a substitute crisis at that time. Or there's currently one now, so these things continue. Um, but in 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 that, um, I suppose one of the things um, that I found myself doing was, was experiencing a range of schools and a range of children and lots of different groups of children very quickly. So within within three or four weeks, I mean, like numbers of classes and and schools that that I was in, and really enjoying. And um, that sense of connection with the with with, with the with with the pupils, getting to know some people on the staff and the sort of uh, collegiality that I could see a lot of, across a lot of the schools and look you you feel a school as soon as you walk in the door, and you know you kind of get a sense of it. and I really understood what that meant at that point. I remember my my uncle is also a primary school principal, and I I think he was nearly paying some teachers to stay at home to give me some work (laughs) to try to encourage us when talking about that intentionality. (laughs) And and I think you were lured in, Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I remember uh, really well that, uh, you know, Jerry entering my class while I was substitute teaching and uh, and really just modeling for the next 45 minutes of teaching this is how you teach this you know these are the this is how you use your body language this is how you speak this is the eye contact you make these are the types of things that you do and um and really in the early days of my teaching in my teaching and actually progression onto principalship he was really uh really supportive and uh, one of the things he always told me was um you know first of all the school o- school opens for the children not for the, not for the adults so always bear that in mind and first and foremost be an empathetic uh, leader or teacher or whatever you end up being but have that empathy oh, have at the, the empathy. root of all that you do
1: can okay i mean this is fascinating and there's a couple of of, of uh, clear threads that could follow with probably two hours to do it um because i know you went on to study become a teacher in the uk if i'm not mistaken so i want to come back to that part of the journey in a moment but, but the one i would on lots of stuff as you were speaking but the one i want to come back to patrick is finding my voice because you speak about that you very, very vividly, the traffic word, um, the, the, the siblings crowding you out in terms of the voice and all the rest and and the, and the therapist picking up on that. And there's another part, as you say, of the, you, you reference the one-to-one with the speech therapist, but again, the guidance counselor and this diversity of support. But what you reminded me of when you said that is uh, my, again, you, you talk about role models a lot, obviously, and I would agree with you. There's a theme in the podcast series, definitely, which would shouldn't be a surprise in terms of teaching. One of mine in school was Louise Williamson, who was my English teacher uh, for the junior cert. Um, And I began visiting her towards the end of her life. She she passed away uh, far too early, a couple of years ago. And she spoke very movingly about, in her experience of teaching, the great joy, and she was post-primary, mind you know, I know you're primary. She She said very clearly, the magic of teaching when you help a student find their voice for the first time. And she says the best part is if you're there to witness it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so talk to me a bit about that given you started you you anchored your 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 story in that finding the voice space obviously the particular meaning but and given you talk about the diversity of schools i know diversity and inclusion is another theme we might come back to later on the conversation so people finding their voices young and old how, how much of an element has that been in your personal professional growth as an educator
0: even even when you are now Patrick as deputy CEO of the NCCA talk to me about that place. yeah also, I, I think I mean look I, I've been incredibly lucky I, I've had a very supportive family and network as you mentioned like my cultural capital being through the roof in terms of you know the profession I've chosen and the support I've had and in doing that I, I think what you, what you mentioned there about voice and the impact that a teacher can have long after the actual teaching and learning in the classroom has and people finding reflecting on their experience with teachers and being able to speak with with, with their voice uh, in that supportive way i mean one of the things as you were speaking that resonated with me was that teacher mary murphy um who I, who I mentioned earlier and my voice at the time was actually through creative writing she used to do an awful lot of creative writing and that really helps bring out some expressive elements that, um, that in, in terms of work I remember we, we used to be I think the whole class used to have their kind of hoping to be chosen in terms of having their their essay written uh, read out and so on but I, I came from a very settled very um I mean, it was a it was a farming community background. Like it wasn't like very materialistic or anything, but we always had what we needed for education, and that provided uh, very readily and without much fuss. But there's, as we all know, there are huge communities out there who don't, and the inequity that we've experienced, particularly through COVID, and and be, that being brought into the true light of day, um, people don't have a voice. You know, um, people feel like they've been disenfranchised and and disenCHANTed with their experience. Um, of education um, in, in many quarters and I mean I was listening to Myle, Niall Muldoon I think in uh, the, the Ombudsman for Children I think it may have been the podcast uh, Thomas with yourself or, or conversation with yourself and he spoke about you know these aren't hard to reach groups we're the mm. ones who are hard to reach mm. you know and, and we need to change this um, perception of of uh, minority and marginalized and uh, problematizing and the challenge or tackling these things That's not the case. These are our people. These are these are these are part of us. It is us uh, who tends to create that distance. And how can we be more outreaching it's something that's informed a lot of the work? um, I suppose the reason why I came into NCCA really uh, was around education about religions and beliefs and ethics. I mentioned about that social justice angle with sociology of education uh, 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 during in Maynooth University and that for me, you know, seeing the barriers that uh, emerging communities in Ireland were faced with as I as I was a school leader, uh, particularly in Navan, in, in emerging communities on the outskirts of Navan, and coming in not knowing where to go, who to talk to, not having that social capital that I had, that, that cultural capital that I had, uh, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, and um, and and really really trying to find their feet and try try to find their voice. And for a lot of them, it's that Maslow hierarchy of needs. I mean, you need to be feel safe. You need to feel secure. You need to have housing. You need to be warm. You need to be nourished. You need to be able to eat before you can exercise your voice. And we need to be able to, I suppose, support all communities in doing that. There's also the piece, and God, your, your brother and sister want to
1: thank us for this podcast, Patrick. But <laughs> that, <that's, so> apologies <laughs> to them in advance. I've never met them now, but if I ever do meet them, I'll apologize again. But to take that story in, in another way, in this thing of, I love your take on the, that phrase, hard to reach, because it is in danger of becoming a, a kind of an assumed cliche. They're mm. not hard to reach. Those schools are around the corner from other schools with, with, with different backgrounds and so on. But we, as systems leaders, sometimes just shut up. Quite frankly, you know, to step back, and I know you and I have been working together having a discussion on the yeah. process, we'll come to that later on. <clears throat> but I, I want and on that note, just to double back a little bit, you, I think, if I heard you correctly, are you saying, I and mean, maybe I've got it wrong, and I, it's an interesting point, do we over problematize education? You know, so that phrase of hard to reach and so on, do we, are we making it more complicated? It needs to be these kind of what seem to be almost perennial and tractable problems like disadvantage inequity, et cetera, et
0: cetera. Are we over problematizing the problems, you think, Patrick? I think that's really interesting. I, th- I think one of the things that strikes me about what you're saying there, Thomas, is something that actually, when, when you mentioned Beacons as well, happened at a Beacons event that we were at down in Ennis Tynan. It was around inclusive education. And um, for people who don't know, I mean, Beacons is, a, is a, a, an incredible approach to consultation and engagement across a community, not just of a school, but of schools and communities. Um, and it has, you know, children students parents teachers school leaders all in the mix there And what's really interesting is you get to see each other's perspectives you move slightly from where you've been and you get to see each other with with fresh eyes and we were we were in the midst of it in the beacons event on inclusive education and i tend to think i go to the depth of complexity on inclusive education as you're speaking there at and sometimes you just need to stay quiet and listen I was one of the students at the end of the second day. I think who stood up and said something like, "You want to know about inclusive education? Help me make friends. If you can help me make friends, then that's inclusive education, and that feels inclusive for me." And gosh, it nearly hit me like a, like, like a ton, like a ton of bricks. And I began thinking about, okay, is that is that is that is that a is that a, is that a school level? Thing that needs to happen you know that, that's more than a national thing and then I started com- coming back from that saying no we need to be able to push the philosophy the structures of the, the ideology the, the direction of travel in place to make that easily achievable for teachers and schools on the ground with their children and that can be quite difficult to do to us if you think about um you know the hurried classrooms that we have in primary at, at the moment in particular, where um, in my experience of primary anyway, where when I was teaching, it was, um, oh, gosh, at the time, OK, close your maths books, folks. We're on to Irish now and ch- changing right probably in the middle of something that's going on and not having those that 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 downtime, that gap where children can actually relate to each other in the classroom, can actually have that conversation and that uh, th- those friendships formed. Um, or consolidated, maybe, and um, I think there's, there are things that we can do on a national level to support more of that in classrooms. I think schools do wonderful jobs in the current set of circumstances around this, but when that student spoke, I mean, it, that just can't fall on deaf ears. You need to, you need to take take heed of it. I think what's,
1: there's a couple two things you're wondering in particular, as you speak. One is I know your your colleague Arlene uh, uses the phrase a lot. I can't remember who the author is. You probably will. The idea of the conducive landscape. Yeah. And the other thing is, a teacher who was on an OCD webinar on the pandemic about six months ago, maybe four or five months ago. And he was asked, so he's a practicing teacher in a school, I think it's in Ontario. And he was asked by the host of the webinar, uh, if there's two or three things he would change or, or take learnings from COVID, what would they be? And one of them was people in the system at every level, he said, should stop making assumptions about everybody else. And he included himself as a teacher in that. So when you say about, and I think I would agree with you, we as systems leaders need to be reflected on how how can we do more or do other things differently to form a more conducive landscape. Rather than intervene necessarily and yeah. with the best of intentions, there's also a piece on something I think teachers on the ground, in my experience of talking to them, make assumptions about what we want or what our expectations mm-hmm. might be, and they're they're working to those. I actually, say no, no, it doesn't worry about at all. And the the idea of the levelling conversation, breaking, but stripping a lot of that stuff away. de-assuming the assumptions that that's that's awful English now I wouldn't get to away (laughs) with that in a literacy class but um, there's something in that Patrick I think the the conjunctive landscape piece in particular but also the assumptions that everyone makes with everyone else either in the center or on the periphery and vice versa.
0: You see and Thomas I think you're striking something really interesting there and it's assumptions that lead to expectations that lead to beliefs and lead to driving my practice as a teacher and what we've seen in um, some work that we've done on an interagency basis with um, NCCA, PDST, the NCC, uh, NCSE National Council for Special Education and the inspectorate and the department, as well as working with a network of schools while we're working together. We were having these conversations and for a lot of your primary school uh, teachers listening now, uh, having conversations about paperwork and planning and the drive and the emphasis on giving more paperwork and planning over the years that have accumulated and accumulated and accumulated, where teachers are literally doing 45 pages of, of paperwork per fortnight for their plans at primary in some cases. So that was that's unsustainable and, and it adds to workload, it adds to stress as well. And the other bit that it, that, that, it, that it detracts from is actual engagement with the curriculum. Or thinking creative thinking about what we actually might do with the children, um, if if I have all of these grids and lines and stuff uh, to to fill out. So, um, it was really interesting in getting those groups together into into a room and having those conversations, and where somebody would say, "Well, I mean, I mean, I'm expected to do this," and you know, an inspector say, "From where um, and how? And how, how are you receiving that message?" And then that that being relayed back to the inspector about how that's being received, and said. Oh, crikey, we have an issue here and we need to work together to, to try and solve this. So actually, one of the outcomes of that work, uh, Tomás, it's been quite innovative, has been um, a guidance, guidance material on preparation for teaching and learning. That doesn't just focus on, on do, it doesn't focus on documentation, but focuses on the invisible preparation that teachers do all the time. The thinking they do while they're driving <laughs> driving home from the school day, reflecting on what they've just done, or, or arriving into school and thinking about, "Gosh, you know, Thomas really struggled with that piece there. I need to think about that. And I need to, I need to revisit that with him." And for the rest of the class, I might just move them on to the next little bit. Those types of think that type of invisible preparation that really is that is that, just good teaching. That's just what teachers do. It's our, our colleague you mentioned, Arlene, but another colleague of ours, Jacqueline Fallon. Um, who does an awful lot of work at early childhood as well as primary. But she speaks about teachers as as whales. It's it's not a very flattering comparison, but (laughs) where where, uh, when you go whale watching and you see the great humpback whale coming up to take a breath and they go back down and the big fin comes up and flaps down on top of the water surface and everybody says, whoa, wow, that's amazing. That's teaching. The, The whale, though, is thinking... I'm just, I'm just a whale. This is just what I do. This is nothing special. And teachers very often think, this is just what I do. This is nothing special. But if you're in a really good teacher, teacher's classroom and you're seeing that, that, that amazing teaching and learning taking place, you can't help but stand back and go, wow. So it's about, in some ways, it's about getting out of the way. And it's about listening, as you said, to 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 communities and for us to stay a little bit quiet at times in relation to some things now just going back to that teaching that preparation work that preparation for teaching and learning um, it it respects the invisible preparation the visible preparation that actually happens in the classroom the magic that happens in the classroom and the changes that teachers make to their plan or to to, to where they're going with the learning based on child feedback as well as a documented approach there is Mm. there is a need there is a need but I used to have two sets of plans Tomás I used to have my, my A4 sheet that was my meaningful plan on my, my refill pad or my teacher notebook or mm-hmm. diary mm-hmm. and my 40 pages. Now, the 40 pages were of no use to me <laughs> when I was teaching.
1: <laughs> but this I would segue from the whale metaphor into the uh, change management piece in the moment, which reminded me of, of the 40 pages versus the one page. I, I said it to HGA some years ago when they were doing a consultation on uh, the structure of ITE, and I said the Irish democracy is one of the longest and broken ones in Western Europe. The upside of that is unbroken democracy. The downside is what I call fragmentation and accretion, which mm. meant that we keep on adding to circulars, to rules, to regulations, to expectations. And we, up until, I would argue, the Education Convention of the 90s, there wasn't really a truly systemic rethink, stop and think. It's no waxing though, that can be Education Act, like Teaching Council Act, NCSE, EPSON, there was a whole flurry of legislation that followed from all of that. So that you to look back and say, actually, what all are we doing? And is it actually in tune. Well, we originally started out with our original purpose. But on the, 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 the way mess, as you say we all look in awe at this you know, amazing creature, which is, after all, from point, just breathing and flapping mm-hmm. and moving along. This thing we spoke about before, Patrick, what I call routinizing change in complexity. The pressure of the classroom are such that where teachers are doing what they just what they do in their head, but it's so amazing if you actually put it in say, the same failed chamber spaces, they have to fold the change very quickly into their daily practice and routinize it because the demands of of, of the daily life are just that. The kids are there. They have yeah. to do it. Yeah. And that speaks to the pressures of the job. It also speaks I think, to things that you're particularly interested in, the whole dynamics of change management. Mm. We, we don't give ourselves a good rep in education in terms of change management. I'm not sure if it's fully deserved. But what, mm. what's your thoughts given the metaphor? Given that what we, we think is actually happening, that teachers are changing and adapting, but they fold it in so quickly, it just disappears in the cake mix like that. And you, you can't discern it anymore. What what's your take on our experience of change management and where we might what we might have learned from it so far? Do you think?
0: Well, I think I think the first starting point for any change management in relation to education is what you what you're pointing to there, thos which is the complexity. At, of the classroom and of practice in classrooms, and without being within that cl- in 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 a classroom with those thirty sets of eyeballs looking at you, and realizing it's all on me here, um, it's very difficult to grasp. And uh, Dylan Williams would speak about learning to drive is a little bit like learning to teach, where let's say you're fresh out of college and you you get a brand new car, it's a manual car, and and um, you you jump in and you begin to drive and you're thinking about everything you're thinking about the gear stick you're thinking about the, the clutch the accelerator indicating looking in the start <laughs> yeah, try, yeah exactly try to keep it on the road first of all <laughs> and then you come to then you come to a roundabout your first issue your first problem your first obstacle and the sweat at the back of your neck begins to roll a little bit and you begin to think about shifting down indicating looking in the rear view mirror etc cetera, etc cetera, and trying to navigate that that expertise for teaching becomes embedded and routinized, as, as as you say. So it just becomes real, the routines, the procedures, the learning environment that teachers set up for uh, for uh, for 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 children. Now, one of the things that isn't so recognized is that when you go to tamper with that, because it's so embedded, it's a very difficult thing to change, and it creates an incredible amount of uncertainty in a very uncertain environment, like a classroom, where there is such uncertainty all of the time. Anything can, can happen. And those procedures and routines and pedagogies and approaches to teaching and learning have served people incredibly well to this point. So what we have to understand is that when we, when we begin to change, we have to acknowledge that there's going to be loss. There's, With every change process, be it a positive or negative change process, there is some sense of loss. It might be loss of the, of the old times, it might be, it might might be through rose tinted glasses that we're thinking about it. It might be loss of, um, it might be loss of. Uh, for instance, I'm just thinking <laughs> the biggest change in my life: having kids, loss of time, <laughs> loss of social life, loss of money. Ah, come on, Patrick, spare me now. <laughs> <laughs> I've, would, I've got <laughs> four daughters.
1: I've no sympathy for you.
0: <laughs> but would I change? It, would, would I change it for the world? Absolutely not. And no, going, no. going back to that teacher, maybe, <laughs> learning to drive, um. Let's say, for instance, they've changed car and they've moved to hybrid, and it's better for the environment. We know it's a better, uh, it's it's a fully sustainable car. Maybe it's an automatic car now as well. And when they step into that car for the first time, there's serious uncertainty because where is the gear? Where is the gear stick? Or there's no gear stick. Okay, um, I, how do I press? Is there a start button? Is it ignition? What exactly do I need to do here? And then it takes time to to become back to the same level of expertise, embedded expertise as you were before so there's, a, there's actually a time of, of loss and there's also a time of a time of where you're not going to be as good as you were um when 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 you used to have your old car and you used to be driving but you'll get back there and you and you'll and be better in the long run because you're saving the planet you're you're, you're sustainable <laughs> and uh and maybe it's a better driving experience for you as well as a teacher are well, a so, little bit in intang- like as teachers i'll speak for myself in this time i don't like you patrick
1: we don't tend to be very comfortable with lag, with loss, and certainly with yeah. any notion of failure. If there's any sense in which, in fact, sc- I think I'm post-primary, you're, you're primary, but yeah. if you have a score dropping or average grade dropping, yeah. they're like, what? Yeah. No, uh, we have a tried and trusted system. So spare me this lag you know, uh, mumbo-jumbo. I, I want to get, <laughs> keep, keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> so that it's it's quite a challenge in terms of that. We know from experience, a lot. the changes are better down are working out for the better. Yeah. But as you say, there's a hard sell in the, in the in the here and now when the immediate the thing in the review the thing in the windscreen the thing in the rearview mirror is a short term loss or mm. a short term. Anyway, keep talking there in that sense.
0: Yeah, you know, I think I think for teachers, it comes down to the commitment we feel to our students, mm. and, and and you don't want us, you don't want any sense of regression or loss or, or or anything that would impact that, and that's that's that becomes then so so there has to be a very good reason to change. So, so you have to appeal, I think, to people's moral purpose here and where we're going and give them the destination we're moving towards and that narrative of why we're moving in this direction. So I think I, so I think that's really important. But, but I, I think also, I mean, other professions, for instance, Tomas, build in that lag time. They build in that. Um, they're honest about it. They are. They're very honest. So if you look at the medical profession, for instance, you know, surgeons, when they're changing a procedure and their practice, they build in a mortality rate. They're not going to be as good as they were. They understand that and people actually will die. But the greater good is that this, in the long term, this procedure will continue to save lives above and beyond what we used to do. And that's, so that's a, that's a very difficult thing for me actually to, to understand. But as a teacher, I, I do understand that, you know, it's difficult for me to say, do you know what, for the next three months, for the next year, as I get to grips with this change, it, I'm not going to be as good as I was. I'm going yep. to be struggling here for a little while.
1: And the other thing worth better reflecting on with your own life story and all of this, children don't live in a vacuum, right? So where there's arguably where the surgeon is, like the, there's a single procedure, a single patient, they have a team of other professionals with them, but it's, it, it, they literally, there, there's nowhere else to go. It's the table, the surgeon and the procedure your life story tells a very powerful woman where where the start where things line up properly there are so many other relational supports in people's lives that can be tapped into perhaps enhanced or whatever you know, in terms of um uncles aunts the community i mean you talking about football man the GEA does connect people in different ways and therefore it, it's almost like what i was talking you're talking about that sense of an all joking aside what, what could be described as lo- described as loss and grief for us as fathers is the evolution of life it's okay yeah. so we don't go to nightclub anymore we, we we don't go out to one o'clock in the morning at the drop of a hat like that anymore mm. we, have, we have to book it about two weeks in advance babysitter and all the rest god you're lucky go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well my eldest my eldest is 17 i I'll going on 18 so we're, we're really well sorted but but that, and that could be seen as a loss or a grief of a kind of if you but look at what else has come along and it's it's that sense in which i was saying yesterday that at a, a cuss event with stakeholders it was uh the support services and so on I wonder sometimes, whatever about over problematizing the system. Mm. Do we somehow, very often, inadvertently, with our with our choice of language, particularly in the formal space, do we dehumanize education and overlook that for teachers, as you say, who are so emotionally mm. invested in their children? Any, there is an almost emotional, palpable sense of loss that arises. What we're saying, this is this is a policy change, or this is a, a practice change, yeah. and and they might even rashly go, okay, I can see this probably be better. But there's a short-term loss that I'm distinctly uncomfortable with. And when you talked about in your in your elision into teaching, you know, you said in hindsight now, I can see this and that but leading up to that. But at the time I wasn't really the intentionality it reminds me of that cliche where they say life is lived forwards, but can only be understood in reverse. Very so good. but that grief piece and that sense of what all do we value, are we talking mm. about all that we value? I mean, in that sense of diversity and inclusion. We often assume it's about inclusion of people. Are we sufficiently inclusive of the whole story of education, Patrick? And what more are we going to do to actually maybe widen the framework here?
0: I think there's a, there's a few things that that um, that strike me as you speak through that, Tomás. One is I think it's movement on both sides. I think it's movement from the from the the national, the meso level, the support service level, teachers moving together and, and not set in opposition to each other. Uh, and that, that that can feel that's a very visceral, visceral feeling when you feel like something's being done to you, and uh, I get that. I, I get that in terms of how um, I think I, I, teachers in classrooms see something arriving on their desk and say, "Well, where did this emerge from? And how, why wasn't I told about it? And like, we haven't had a chance to talk about this. And needs to be it needs to be kind of implemented yesterday. And that's a very difficult thing. And I, I think so. So I so I think there's a, but there's a couple of things that. Will help, I think, in supporting that as well from from both from all, from all levels, which is play with your head up. It's it's a football phrase, you know. You, you play with your head up. You scan the horizon, but you also look after the ball while you have it. So you need to look after the detail. You need to look after what's important in the game, which is the ball, and you have the ball, and you you need to you need to be able to respect that. You need to be able to uh, see see you, you, nurture that and look after that. Be it from my perspective in terms of inclusive consultation and engagement processes and curriculum design or from a teacher's perspective which is a child and the children in their class in their classroom but you also need to play with your head up and look around and scan 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 the game see the bigger see the game happening and how you can then influence an impact on that game with the ball to the best of your ability so if you if you focus too much on the ball too much on the detail you'll make the wrong mistake because you don't see the big picture and, and and everything everything comes in on top of you because you're not you're not looking at the the ways in which I can maneuver around the football pitch, but if you if you focus too much on the big picture, then you're going to lose the ball because you've lost control of it you, you've dropped the ball or, or you've missed soloed or something like that. I think there's something there about keeping the big picture in mind while also focusing in on the detail and the everyday that that that, you, that needs to be looked after
1: i, 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 mix, I for some reason when you said you just you described the image of the thirty pairs of eyes looking at you. <laughs> I talk new language it's like holy god and, and if you want to mix the metaphors arguably teachers might say you know one football we have 30 footballs in front of us when yeah. we're trying to teach the class right so yeah. that 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 piece of the community and you spoke of your entry point at the ncca being ethics and religious belief and i think had a slightly wrong end of the stick in this one in terms of your particular take on our angle on it but would you we have a couple of threads here together from if you don't mind it, no, no pressure now. But the, the idea of the community piece, mm. given the pressure that teachers are under, arguably because they don't have enough space and time to, to engage with the community in a more ongoing sense. Uh, and maybe I think there, I sense there's resonance between that point and your own particular area of uh, initial area of expertise and interest in the agency was ethics and religious belief. And for the purpose of the audience, you might talk a bit about ERB given. I had a slight mis- cons- misapprehension of it when we, when we were talking. So over to you, Patrick, no pressure. Let's, we're all <laughs> together <now. laughs>
0: well, I think the community engagement piece is really interesting to us because, I mean, what, the, what, so so why did I get interested in ERB and ethics? This strange uh, conglomeration mm. of education about religions, beliefs and ethics. Um, I suppose it went back to when I was when I was, uh, I was was beginning the school in Ardree Community National School as a school leader. I was... I was, a, I, was a, I was a, I suppose, a, a Mead VC in their wisdom appointed somebody with zero experience of school leadership, but tons of um, energy and enthusiasm and and I suppose drive to try. And when, I, when we began the school, we had no kids, no uniform, no building, no policies, no anything. Um, but we had fantastic people, uh, Peter Kieran's and Mead VC. I mentioned role models earlier, and Christy Duffy in particular, who who supported me no end in getting that school up and running. And it was, it was true um, that outreach that I had to do as a new school leader to the new communities in Navan, You know, going to the halting sites in the traveling community, traveling out to the newly newly built um, housing estates from people coming from Dublin into Navan because they, you know, they didn't want to live in Navan, but, but we can't afford houses in Dublin, so here we are. Um, and new communities emerging in those, in those estates and in those networks and in those people. And, th- and as I mentioned earlier on, people looking around going, where do we go? Where do we go to school here? What do we do here? Well, I had, to, I, I suppose my, I, the way I saw my role as school leader was to reach into those communities and give them the answer Um, for Ardree Community National School as a potential uh, school for your child and and a little support as well across uh, parents working with us through the school. So that's how I got interested in um, community engagement in particular, Tomás. I suppose everyone assumes I'm the religion guy when it comes to uh, uh, education about religions and beliefs and ethics, But, but I suppose the Community National School Ethos um, was very centered around a multi-belief approach to education, and which was inclusive of all faiths and 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 beliefs. And recognize the importance of those in young, in children's lives and try to nurture those. Um, and there's been various evolutions of that uh, through the years. Uh, but when I was, when I was a principal, that was to the core of what we were trying to do. So we were actually working with the NCCA for a short time on a piece of, uh, on, a, on a program called Goodness Me, Goodness You. And I was part of the principal group feeding into that network. And I could see I could see the NCCA in action. I could see how they were listening to us. I couldn't believe they were listening to us, uh, but they were. And they were taking what they what they were hearing and their expertise in curriculum development and education and knowing all they do about research and, and children and crafting this wonderful, uh, this wonderful uh, creative uh, program for us um in, in terms of community national schools um and then then the position came up in ncCA for for somebody working in ERB and ethics um, i had i i i was very interested at the time of the forum on patronage and pluralism, obviously as a community national schools were newly emerging. Uh, model of school we were the first outside Dublin in Avon and um and so we we had I had a keen interest in everything that was happening in that space and that's where the recommendation actually arose from John the late great John Coulahan um making reference to the development of a a, a, a curriculum in ERB and ethics Um, so something new for 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 all Irish primary schools so um so so that's that's how I got interested in that work Tomás and (laughs) how I and then I was thrown headfirst into <laughs> religious education, patronage debates and uh, and all sorts. But I suppose keep... I was com- I was coming from a more of a, I would you say, an intercultural community based approach uh, than, than that. But, but I, I, I've, I suppose I've had remarkable um, opportunities and time to listen to perspectives it's fascinating and it's it's actually part of the job that I love most is, is listening to different voices and different ideas. But I mean,
1: Patrick, for God's sake, you could have picked an actually challenging role <laughs> to go into. You know, you know, <laughs> you know, religion is you know, such an easy one to, to discuss and, and, and patronage and ownership and all of that. But,
0: well, the, well, but <laughs> Go on. Well, I, I moved on from that then uh, in terms of the, 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 the primary language curriculum, uh, which, which is Irish, you know, and, and then most, one of the most recent ones is a review of relationships and sexuality education. So you have have religion irish and (laughs) (laughs) rolled into one and um and i suppose but it goes back to Thomas, what kind of what floats my boat is 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 working with people and listening to perspectives and and trying to move things a little bit um and then also exercising leadership which is very very important uh once you've lit as you listen as you hear as you make sense of and and interpret and, and check again to make sure your interpretation is correct, mm. you, you have to exercise leadership. That's the only way things happen. So you, you have to put actions in place to, to be able to move things on.
1: I was going to leave this question for the end. I literally, whether it's telepathy going on here, I wrote this down. I said, this is going to be the question at the end. But now you've said what you said, I'm going to bring it forward and God knows what happened at the end of the thing. But you said, you said what floats your boat, right? So working with people, listening to people. Can I ask you, Patrick? And I think people could discern. A lots of different ideas from the diversity of your story floating your boat is one thing I was to ask you why do you still do what you do what spark to what end so you listen to people you you yeah. reflect back you call it back you exercise leadership but fundamentally you've had such so many different roles a huge diversity and breadth of experience what why do you do all that what what's your spark that that you're trying to light a fire from
0: yeah, I, I suppose it's very corny, um, Tomas, but it is it is the absolute truth. Which is, you know, literally every morning I wake up and and I say, "How am I going to make the world a little bit better?" I just happen to do education, and I have a fundamental interest in child children and communities and making that a better place for everybody. Um, so that's that's sort of that's that's as, as corny as it gets. But how that actually. So, so what's motivating me right now in terms mm-hmm. of our work in NCCA is we have an incredible opportunity in the next few years to make an enormous difference for the next few generations coming behind us. So there's been there's, there are three major educational reforms of primary and um, throughout the 20th century. You had the 1926 curriculum, the 1971 curriculum and the 1999 curriculum. And this is the next one. So. If you can think about how significant that is for our system, for our teachers, for our children, for our parents, for our community, and how they'll experience education, That's certainly was driving me at the moment. And the other piece is to think about it, which I always—I I just love this—Arlene, um, who's our CEO at NCCA, um, speaks about this quite a lot. Is you know, um, children born this year will go to school in twenty twenty five. They'll graduate and go into the workforce probably in 2040 and and live maybe into 2090s 20 20 20, or 2100 potentially what type of world are they going to inhabit what type of what type of world are they going to shape how are we going to enable them to live and shape that world and make that world slightly better than it has been um for for us and um that's something so so i think that so having that purpose having that to to, uh, the core is something that has been driving driving, um, a lot of the work that I've been doing and and motivation in that that regard. Um, I think one of the things that we need to do in that process um, is be that outreach organisation, engage those communities as inclusively as we can through consultation processes and make sure that the voices are represented because these are big decisions and they can't be taken by a national organisation in Dublin or Portage where we have our head offices, it has to be across across the country and engaging with communities. So that's a big challenge for us, and it's something that uh, that we're intent on doing. Um, but it also maybe it's going back to that heads up football idea. We also need people to talk to us and mm. to, and, and mm. to see. Oh, NCCA are having a consultation. I'm going to have my say. Oh gosh, I find curriculum overload is an issue. I'm going to t- I'm going to feed that back. I have an idea around digital te- technology in the curriculum. Here's what I learned during COVID. And I'm going to include that in my response to the consultations that NCC are having. But so it's, it's a bit of both. I would agree with you. I think probably the response
1: you and I would get, though, I'm, I think Beacons is, is a way of, look, of addressing underlying concern. When you look at you talk about the interagency approach earlier on, and you would probably even a subset of the agency in the system, there's lots of organizations like Teaching Council and CCA yeah. all want to have conversations with the same school, the same teachers. Now, Beacons obviously offers a framework with which the school will be saying, or the schools actually will talk to you when we're good and ready, or we, you know, we, yeah. we try and you know, yeah. organize priorities. To jump back, what I've jotted down here uh, in terms of basic numeracy, going by your history lesson on the curriculum there the pace of change is definitely acceleration. There's a 50-year gap initially, then yeah. roughly 30 years, then less than 20 years. If, if you trace the, the genesis of the primary languages curriculum, it's been less than 20 years Yeah, the 99 curriculum yeah. to the beginning of this curricular consultation. And I drew a spiral going in itself, actually. I was doing... <laughs> 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 <kind of laughs> faster.
0: A visual but, thinker. And and the,
1: and the better word piece really catches me. Because I'm like you, you know, my, my, my kind of life purpose would be similarly corny and similarly succinct. And given your narrative around ERB and your own personal journey, why well, I it was a climate change piece, because arguably if I understand your your worldview correctly, Patrick, you stroke the NCC, but you in particular as a person are coming at this that Every life of Brian, we're all individuals, right?
0: So, <laughs> so, yes, so, we're all individuals. Well. There's, there's
1: no Star Wars references, Patrick, unfortunately, <laughs> no, no, but no, I'm glad. doing life of Brian, doing life of Brian. So we're, we're all individuals. Therefore, yes, I may happen to be uh, a, a, identified as a Catholic, let's say, for argument's sake. I happen to be white, middle-aged, mi- middle-class in a Western suburban estate or whatever. But I don't go around carrying those hats explicitly, and I don't mm. turn off one part of my identity and turn on the other like a robot from one end of the day to the other so that your inclusive, uh, integrative, is that a word, or integration mm. approach of, of ERB, look at climate change. Like, it's, it, it's, it's such a massive problem. It calls on this massive multidisciplinarity, which I, I would submit, and maybe that's probably point I'm asking to respond to because I, like I don't know what question I'm asking here. But for post-prime, it might be more of a challenge because I did my primary degree first did a h dip it was mm-hmm. history in irish i would be registered as it, it, my rules registration will say history and Irish in the register and yet we need more it seems interdisciplinarity more fluidity more creativity drawing on as andy harris would say interdisciplinarity actually respects disciplinarity it doesn't yep. counter it mm-hmm. from a primary perspective patrick and given that you you have oversight not just primary but early childhood and primary yeah. the ncca Talk me a bit about that kind of journey towards integration, of you know yeah. an inclusion of identity, and then complexity of problems, but how we actually manage that in a finite education system. Again, no pressure.
0: Let's take it take it back where you started with the history lesson. I think, I think the rate of change has increased, and so has the rate of change in society. So, so we need to look again at at developments and how things work in the world. Is our curriculum working uh, right now for, for all communities and for all children? And what's changed and how, and how can we make it, how can we improve it? So I think that's something to bear in mind. And and you're right to point to these. I mean, like we've been dealing with COVID for the last couple of last 18 months or so. Climate change is not going away. And that's the emergency and that's the crisis that we're all facing into. And um, I think I think uh, the, the the 2030 goals and the 2050 goals that are outlined, I think actually we're at the highest uh, in the world who has to make the greatest cut by 2030 because we missed our 2020 goals because um, of the crash, the economic crash. We essentially couldn't make make the changes that we wish to make. I remember that being reported at the time and kind of saying, do you know what, that's understandable, you know, because as you say, it affects me you know and and the economic crash happened to me in my communities and i can understand that but we haven't made that change that needs to make that that's, that's needs to be made so all of a sudden we have these huge targets by 2030 um to uh, to to work towards and i think what you're speaking there about education and particularly around education for sustainable development uh, we've actually just undertaken a piece of work um which will be published now in the coming months, which audits um, our current curriculum for education about sustainable development. And what it's actually found is that there's fantastic connections in the early childhood space with the Ashtar uh, curriculum framework through well-being, identity, and belonging, communicating and thinking and exploring the four themes of Ashter they already have inbuilt um approaches to education for sustainability that can be that can be. Um, enhanced and drawn upon and and furthered so we're looking at that and we're currently updating Ashtar we're in the process of updating Ashtar um, for the next for the next three years which we, and ESD education for sustainable development is right at the top of the list as is inclusion and diversity as you can imagine um, but in terms of in terms of the primary curriculum uh, and, and looking towards post-primary more has to be done in terms of in in terms of the learning around ESD in in those uh, in those sectors. There are strong. I mean, if you look at geography and and um, the environment and the world around us, um, and SPHG in terms of your ethical and your your value base, and, and that can that can really support um, an understanding. But at this point in time, I mean. You know, a, a greater emphasis on ESD across primary and post-primary is really, really necessary if we are to, make, if we are to be realistic about what we can do and if we are to make, make a difference. So education is only one part of the puzzle, of course, mm. uh, in terms of all of that. And teachers mm. won't and can't do it all. Um, but certainly we need to be able to put the structure and the framework in place that will allow that teaching to take place um, in the years ahead.
1: But arguably, as well, Patrick, all of that, but plus doubling back to our earlier thread mm. of communities, that it was Fanula Waldron said in the podcast I saw in Delaney, I Delaney a couple of years ago. Um, you know, the traditional, let's uh, say, 19th century view of children education was you were moving them through a machine. And to prepare them for the end point, whereas, and especially with the constitutional amendment here in Ireland, now they are actually citizens of their own right in the here and now as we know from the great of Turnbrook movement alone, they are really activating that voice. So yes, we have so much kind of maybe internal renovation to do in our education house, but we want to allow for connecting points with the local communities, even mm. you know, that, that whole—I think—very You're sorry, your are with the geopolitics. Yeah. There's, there's. I was always to Tip O'Neill said all politics are local. There's the local, geopolitics, and there's the national, and the and, uh, 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 and the international. Patrick, we're coming to the last few minutes, believe it or not, I have about 20 other questions I could ask. And so I I are know where I'm going to go. I I
0: Tomas, can I just come in on a point that you're that yes. you're touching on there for a moment? Because you, you mentioned voice earlier. And mm. I, I spoke about my own personal experience of voice. I spoke about community voice, but, but we haven't spoken about child voice just yet. Shoot. And you and you've mentioned that, you know, we're a democracy, children have rights, children are full citizens in our in our schools, in our in our communities. And that has an impact in terms of how we look at curriculum and in how we look at how we teach and learn. So, you know, the, the old, I suppose idea of curriculum as something that is imparted to children, something that is done to children. And we spoke about how, how versatile that, that sense is of being something being done to you. And that's maybe where Fanula is coming from with her, with her um, mm. industrialization model. Mm. Um, if you're living in a 21st century uh democratic society and you want active citizens who are conscientious about education for sustainable development for instance or climate change or or other aspects uh, world crises you can teach them in very direct ways and and you can instruct and uh, impart all all of your knowledge to that child as you see it uh, in your role but it's highly unlikely that that will result in an active citizen who's conscientious and who can actually make a change in the world. If you want that um, outcome for children, you need to engage with their voice. They need to be heard and listened to and it has to happen in the classroom. If it's not happening in the classroom, it's really not happening. So that comes down to the choices that are open to children in the classroom, the types of learning that they like to engage with, the ways in which they like to engage with it, of course, a very active and facilitative role by a teacher. And, of course, a repertoire of pedagogies are incredibly important in any teaching and learning. But certainly that child voice piece has to be one of the emphases in the years ahead in our teaching and learning. If we want, as I say, that conscientious, active citizen um, who's going to make our world a little bit better and shape their world in the years ahead?
1: i want to offer a slight reflection and response because you know my my, my older daughters are post primary, so obviously by way of your qualification and your response, you speak of children. So I would yeah. add young people to the equation, yeah, and it strikes me as odd that very often the codes of conduct for post primary just as they're beginning to as well grow physically grow mentally all that challenges but there's a it seems to be not an assumption we must lock down harder now i know young mm. people can get up to all sorts of crazy stuff yeah. we were we were in college too patrick because
0: we, <laughs> <laughs> we we, we all went to those, back there
1: <laughs> we all went to those parties um but there's something about if, if, i think what's implicit in your comment there and correct me if i'm wrong is the mod the ideas of modeling and demonstration So it's one thing to have the syllabus, the curriculum to a T. It's one Mm. thing to make sure they receive the content and so on. And you I I noticed your choice of words very carefully. You can do that. You can do the other. But is that what we're about? Come back to my question to you earlier on. What's the spark? What floats your boat? You have a very clear sense of that. So do teachers, actually, in some of the school communities. But I very often want, and I often ask this question of teachers in some of my the workshops that I run, go back to that moment in your life when you said, I you know, first said, I want to be a teacher. Think of what drove, brought you to that moment. Mm, mm. Look at where you're at now and how you're teaching what And do you think you're still where you wanted to be? And if you're not, where, 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 where are you going? And on that note, as I said, we could go on another half hour, an hour, more, Patrick. But what I wrote down when you were describing to me your journey through school, and anyone could and, and have a whole podcast on that alone. But I'd really love to go into that bit more, but we, won't, <laughs> we haven't got time. And you had you know, fairly not a great experience in the first year in college and so on. Um, so it seemed to me there was quite a long period of time whereby for someone who's reached such a senior position in a national education body, your education experience in post-primary and third level was, was interesting, shall we say. Mm. And Martin Hayes, the fiddler, tells a story whereby he seemed to have a similar type of journey whereby he always knew what he wanted to do. But he found himself in a space where what he was doing was totally counter to what he professed to, to, to want to do. Yep. And he got to a point, it's in his, his, his book that's coming out shortly, apparently, whereby in, after uh, preparing for a gig with a friend in, in New York, the friend sent something to him in such a dismissive way that Martin Hayes smashed his fiddle over his head. Right, and this was his epiphany. He he, he ran yeah, out of the place. That was it for him. Yeah, he jumped, he jumped in a taxi. He said, "I can't be there again," and he put himself on a whole new life path. You didn't have a, a fiddle smashing moment, thankfully, uh, or not, that you, not, not, not that 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 we're aware of. But you came to that point in first year in college, whereby you wanted the, you you pop dropping out. You didn't. You mm. you then went for the Euros. Mm. If you were to go back to Patrick Sullivan, whatever age you were in first year in college, having lived the life you lived so far. What would you say to him?
0: I probably wouldn't say anything that's too far wide of the mark of what Peter said to me that day in Maynooth, the, the counselor I went to see, which was, you have no right to be here if you're not going to put in what you want to get out. So find out what you want to get out of it and then make the effort. But I, Thomas, as you speak there, I mean, I've been incredibly, I have all the cultural capital, as I mentioned earlier on, to, to, so you, you mentioned about maybe acceleration process of pro- progress following that but it, it's it's because i've 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 had the connections i've had the education i've had the background i've had the language to be able to to be able to do to be able to succeed in my in this particular profession at the minute and not succeed but just just to just to advance joy, a bit, enjoy exactly and it does also come i, I mean one of the one, another, another maybe epiphany moment for me was was returning to university uh, returning to study while being a school leader uh, back in Maynooth, um with the with the school leadership uh, masters, and that's the title of this podcast is lighting a fire, and you know that that was certainly nourished during those times as, as an adult returning. That motivation is there, that purpose is there, that understanding of why I'm doing this is there. So you will put well, I, I certainly found I would put in what I into that what I wanted to get out of it, and I continued that on in terms of my my, my studies at doctor level. I think that's probably something that um so so I suppose anybody uh, younger patrick Sullivan might, might have felt entitled might have felt like this cannot happen in front of me and I can just cruise through. but I think that message that Peter told me in minute that day um really really has uh, has, has had a big lasting impact impact um in terms of in terms of what I want to get out of my uh, career my profession and, and life generally.
1: I, I'm going to sum up, if I may, and be so bold to, to finish it off. But we started with you talking about finding your voice, and going back to that moment with the, with the guidance counselor and him saying, you know, you, 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 the implication of his advice to you was, we well, must know what you want to do. You must find out what you want to do. So it seems to me, even to a conversation like this, Patrick, I have the privilege of hosting these kind of conversations and, and 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 buzzing off them in the way that you you find out new things. You seem to epitomise in so many ways the idea of yes, finding out what you want to do by means of finding your voice in relationship with others. So why yeah. conversation? Yeah. Like my best John, I can't remember all the hallmarks of a great conversation according to John do but one of them is where you find yourself saying things you never knew you never That's knew. Right.
0: Yeah,
1: and so that the boy that we had we didn't get to half the topics we planned to get to. But we had—I'd like to think we had a great conversation. I think we did anyway. are we the audience and think, but, but but that sense of therefore the the arb the community the inclusion the diversity is all about people finding their voice in relation with each other and drawing things out of each other. That's the root of education, obviously. That if hardly were aware were there in the first place, and and it's you speak very movingly, if I may say, of and I, that's I think my tripwire as well in a good way you want to extend those opportunities to others that you had and others didn't. So you look back in your life and you see all the personal support, the family support, the community support, the sports support, the leadership support, the HGI support, the guides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And here's where you are right now. And there are others, you, we can see it. And you've talked to those people throughout your career of they did, it's not in any way, but like, they didn't have those opportunities, didn't have that capital, but you're working mm. every way you can where you are now, regardless where to go from here. To try and extend those opportunities, and that's that's really inspirational. So, so thank you.
0: But well, I, I have nothing further to add, to that um, Thomas. Uh, but just to say that I actually wasn't going to speak about it's first time I've spoken about that that delay in speech. So maybe that's something tells you something about the conversation we had today. So thank you very much. Wow.
1: Okay, Patrick. I, I uh, thank you. But that, that's that's um, that's that's that. that. That—that That's what most people fail in doing is make me speechless. And <laughs> <laughs> so, we both have, we both <laughs> lost our voice. So.
0: <laughs> that's definitely the conclusion of the podcast.
1: <laughs> L- lose our voice to fight it again. So, Pat, that's been an incredible experience. I want to say thank you to Patrick for, for going to part of the podcast, for talking so openly and so honestly. And I uh, believe you me, Patrick, if it has half the effect on the listeners I had on me, that, that would be well worth telling that story if, 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 if for the first time. So I want to really, really thank you for that. I think all our listeners continue to tune into the podcast. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share the link with friends. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in the usual way. You can find us on all major podcast channels. If you have any comments or thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at Teaching Council, all one word, or email us directly at communications at teachingcouncil.ie. It's your name, thanks everyone for listening.